Hello and welcome to Flushing Transit Authority, a Mets podcast. I'm Jay Bushman and I'm here with my co-host Will Stegman. How's it going, Will? Pretty good, Jay. How are you? I am great. And you want to know why I'm great? I'm great because we are less than a week away from opening day. I'm super excited. Every year I do that thing where I get crazy excited at the beginning of spring training then I get tired of spring training. I get tired of the players that we're not going to see again until September. And I walk away. And then usually two weeks before the season starts, I begin to get super excited again. <laughs> and then that ramps up. The good thing about this year is we get an early start to the season. I, 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 I'm good with early starts in, in, in theory, but there just, there just seems something wrong having the first games of the season in March. It's happened before, but I believe the last time I remember the Mets opening a season in March was the season that they opened in Japan. Oh yes, that's right. God, the Japan season. We'll we'll we'll, we'll tell a story it. about that later because I remember I remember um, getting up in the middle of the night and going to I think it was the ESPN Zone in Times Square to watch one of those games. I believe didn't yes. Benny Agbayani have a big day. In yes, Japan? I believe he did. I believe ah, he did. Benny. My yes, I, I I want to believe that there's like a children's book somewhere that's called Benny Agbayani's Big Day, <laughs> and if there isn't, then someone should get on writing that. Yes, or Benny Agbayani is big in Japan. Is um he's the David Hasselhoff of the Mets <laughs> in Japan? Japan, not Germany. You get it. I, I I'm with you. I'm with you there. I'm with you. So um, 62 and 0. Um, how are you feeling about this year? Well, look, I admit that my prediction last year was a little aggressive. A little. A tiny bit. So I've tempered that. My prediction for the Mets this year, and lock this in, I'm going to get this tattooed, um, <laughs> like on my shoulder. Okay. Um, so I think the Mets this year are going to succeed more than they did in 2017. And I think a reasonable expectation for this team is 120 and 42. 120 and 42. So the Mets okay. will win 120 games. Okay. They're going to drop 42. Yeah, they drop one here or there. Right. Yeah. Okay. You know, but basically they're going to lose a game every, you know, they're going to lose two games a week. <laughs> so if they go five and two every seven games. <laughs> sure, that works out. That works out. That so, totally works out. So yeah, 120 and 42. Um, what about you? Well, I don't, I don't like to be in the business of picking records um, because, you know, it's like picking a due date for a child. Like, right. You can guarantee that that's not going to be what it's going to be. Yes. I tend to, I tend to want to just sort of look at the larger sweep of the season. I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm always cautiously optimistic. Um, but as a, as a Mets fan, you have to be cautiously to be. optimistic. <laughs> the last time we went into something with unbridled enthusiasm, that was called 2017. Yeah. But the thing that I'm really, I'm really most interested in this season, more than any kind of individual player or individual kind of uh, uh, matchup, is just the storyline about culture. Like yeah. everything about this offseason has been about changing the culture around the team. And I, I am going to be really interested to see how that goes. Because it's really easy to say we're going to change the culture. But cultures arise 
in response to real world needs and wants. And those don't change just because you say we want them to change. So, you know, as much as, as they say they want a culture change, Jeff Wilpon is still going to be sticking his nose into medical reports. Yep. And, you know, what's going to happen when that happens? Yeah. You know, I think realistically, if I take off my Mets fan 120 win hat and put on my realistic, um, you know, baseball fan, knowledgeable fan thing, I would say that realistically, you go into a season hoping that your team can win 90 games. Yes. If your team wins 90 games, you've had a successful season. You've had something to cheer for all year round. With that in mind, so the over-under for the Mets, when you look at what they did last year and how they have shifted their roster um, in, I think, in some ways, in some big ways, and in some ways, some very subtle ways, I think that you've got to place an over-under on this team at 80 wins. Like, realistically, when I look at this team compared to what they did last year, culture change is going to win you some games. But realistically, if this team finishes above 500, it's a successful season. And, you know, we talk about 90 wins and we talk about 500. Like, the difference between apart, that's eight games. Right. What you forget is the difference between those two, exactly, is. It's so small, Mm -hmm. but it's the difference between a successful season and a bust is winning that small number of games. So when I like to make wildly optimistic predictions, they're not about amounts of wins or or, or statistics. I I tend to want to make a wildly optimistic prediction about a player. Got it. And so the player who I am getting all behind this year, who I think is going to... Um, turn a corner Mm -hmm. and become a much bigger part of this team than anyone thinks he will be is Wilmer Flores. I think this is the year of Wilmer Flores. I think Adrian Gonzalez is going to get Wally pipped at first base. Adrian's been pipped before. Yes. (laughs) And, and I just, I just have this feeling that this is going to be Wilmer's breakout year. You know, you're not alone in that. Um, Mets manager Mickey Calloway has said Wilmer Flores needs to play. Yes. Um, as um, my friend and friend of the podcast, uh, Cara Jeffrey, mm-hmm. um, uh, says, and I can't remember her exact term, but basically she's also a big fan of Wilmer. Mm-hmm. And when she saw Mickey's comments about Wilmer needing more playing time, she's just like, you know, I'm a fan of Mickey Calloway for life, as yes. I am. Yes. Like, I'm already on board. Yes. I think this team, if Wilmer Flores is playing, um, if he's out there five times a week and he is hitting like he is capable of, that's a good sign for this team. That's a very good sign. Um, What I'm looking at, here's my barometer for how the Mets are going to do this year. I think the Mets' fortunes will rise and fall based on how does Matt Harvey perform? Mm. I know we've joked yes. about Matt Harvey. Is Matt Harvey alive? Is Matt Harvey able to... <laughs> but right. a healthy Matt Harvey who can give you innings. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Regardless, like I'm not, I'm not looking for that 2000, 
12. I'm not looking for that young Matt Harvey. It's easy to forget when mm-hmm. you look at what's mm-hmm. happened to Matt Harvey, how exciting it was when Matt Harvey first came up. Yes. Yeah. Matt Harvey was the first guy on this team who made me feel like the Mets were turning a corner. And it became Harvey Day. Yes. And we got excited. Mm-hmm. And then Syndergaard shows up. Um, and then Jacob deGrom, who actually yeah. showed up before Syndergaard, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And we need to have a discussion. Put a pin in Jacob deGrom, because I want to talk about something very specific. Okay. With him. But this team will be as good as Matt Harvey is, in my opinion. It's going to be a very interesting year for Matt Harvey, and it's going to be a very interesting year for the whole pitching staff. And I think the other thing that I'm really excited to see is Callaway and Island have been pretty forthcoming about like about saying that the starters get two trips through the uh, through the order, yeah, and then we bring in someone from the bullpen and this bullpenning idea and this idea that someone like a Seth Lugo or Robert Gazelman could come in in the fifth and pitch. Two or three innings. Right. And isn't this how the relief cores used to work when we were growing up? It is. That it wasn't so hyper-specialized as it became? It is. And I think that Mickey Countway is looking at the example of what the Indians did in the postseason two years ago. Yeah. Now, the risk you run with that is doing what Terry Collins did and turning every bullpen arm into Jerry Blevins. Yes. Yes. Where everybody's getting out there and working you know, I am Mickey Calloway and Dave Island have done nothing to make me feel like they don't know what they're doing yet. They've said the right things. Give them a week. <laughs> yes. It's New York. Someone will come up with something. As soon as somebody comes in and something goes wrong in a game that counts. Yes. But I mean, Matt Harvey looked pretty good in his start this right. week. Um, looked like, you know, not vintage Matt Harvey. But was workmanlike, mm-hmm. threw strikes, mm-hmm. looked good. Yeah. If Matt Harvey can give the team 150 innings, that's going to bode very well for the staff. Because again, you're not stressing the bullpen as much. You know, unfortunately, in the small sample size of last season, Matt Harvey was a waste. And I don't mean yeah. that in an yeah. insulting way. Just the innings he threw didn't yeah. benefit the yeah. team. Yeah, totally. So I'm looking forward to seeing what he does. One thing that I wanted to mention um, when talking about pitching staff is I just learned a short time ago, um, this came courtesy of uh, Marco, our buddy who mm-hmm. um, who runs the Mets fans in LA meetup group, um, friend of the podcast and a really solid guy. Um, he informed me this morning that Zach Wheeler has been sent down to Vegas. Really? Which means Seth Lugo is the team's number five starter. Wow. Now, I think between the two of them, while Wheeler's got better stuff, it's six of one, half dozen of the other. As much as I like Zach Wheeler, I think he's got great stuff. You, Zach Wheeler doesn't give you enough innings. He throws too many pitches. He runs too many high counts. Yeah. And by the fifth inning, if he makes it to the fifth, Zach Wheeler's throwing 100 pitches. But the other way to read that is that they think Wheeler is a starter mm-hmm. and they don't want to put him in the bullpen. Yeah. So they're sending him down so he can play triple A so he can stay in the starting position and he'll be back in two weeks. Right. I would not be surprised. Yeah. You know, yeah. you never thought that, um, you know, seeing Vargas go down with the broken hand yeah. um, would lead to the Mets almost having 
what used to be considered right. the yeah. dream rotation of Syndergaard, DeGrom, Harvey, um, Mats, and Wheeler. It's like, oh, as somebody on Twitter happen. said, I forget who it was, but it's like, it's the most Mets thing in the world <laughs> to back into that rotation yeah. and then be uh -huh. upset about it. Uh -huh. yeah. So I am, wow. uh, I was surprised by that. But I watched a little bit of uh, Wheeler start, yeah. um, I guess, yesterday in the spring training game. Yeah. I am not surprised. I didn't watch it. I was looking at the yeah. box score and it's like, yeah. you can only tell so much. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't know. Yeah. How did his pitches look? Were they hard hit balls? Did the defense let him down? Um, they were pretty hard hit. I have really enjoyed though coming home and seeing Mets games on, even though it's spring training. Even games. though it's spring training, but coming spring training is is you know is still it, it allows us to get into uh, shape as much as mm -hmm. the players. Yes. It allows it allows us to get to shake off the winter doldrums and to start putting baseball back into our lives a little bit at a time. I'm ready. So we do have a few days left um, before the end of spring training. And as we said in our last episode, we're, you know, so we want to refocus the podcast this year a little more towards our original intent about telling stories about the Mets. So I want to tell a story about spring training. Um, and so uh, first we got to set the scene. It's mid-morning in Port St. Lucie, March 2001. Okay. Mets players are trudging across one of the back fields on their way to their next drill. And I'm standing there with my ex-wife. Oh, you're here for this. I'm, I'm there. Okay. Yes. I'm there with my, my ex-wife. And um, she was my, not my ex-wife at the time. She was my wife at the time. She, we were dating. Later we got married. Later we got divorced. I don't, anyway. I don't judge. You can, bring, you can have an ex-wife and bring well, her spring training. I mean, this is a thing that I've, I've, I've thought a lot about. Like mm -hmm. a lot of my Mets stories involve her and I haven't really wanted to talk about her all that much because frankly, she's, she doesn't have a podcast to, you know, talk right. about me. Maybe she does. I don't know. Um, and exes are exes. Exes are exes. But I can't tell a lot of my Mets stories specifically from this period of time without including her. So, you know, um, so when I say my ex-wife, it's this is who I'm talking about. Anyway, we went to uh, spring training in March of 2000, in 2001, and we're standing there. And she nudges me, and she says, are you going to do it? So do I gather what? up my nervous energy as these players are walking by, and I call out, hey, Stormbringer. So one of the, one of the passing players looks up. Todd Pratt. Stormbringer. You remember Todd Pratt? I the, uh, the chunky backup catcher. He's got two claims to fame in, in Mets lore. One is he hit the home run. He did. To win the 1999 NLDS over the Arizona Diamondbacks. The other one is that he is one of the supposed sources of the famous line about Shea Stadium that it may be a dump, but it's our dump. I think that it, that was that is every Mets fan's opinion. Yes. Of Shea Stadium. But in 2001, Todd Pratt has another odd little thing to his name. So this is before mobile data was everywhere, before the internet had slithered its way into every nook and cranny of our lives, before social platforms were connecting celebrities with their fans or, you know, destroying democracy. Right, back then, the only way you could connect with a player is to go to the game yes. and yell at them. Yes. So, but in 2001... 
If you knew where to find a web forum devoted to the game Ultima Online, you could find Todd Pratt posting there yeah. about his love of the game and his character that he played, Ian Stormbringer. Nice. I was right. going to ask how yes. it ties in. Just so you can set the scene for me, since I didn't play this game, yeah. what kind of game was this? Ultima Online is like an early version of, a, of an MMO like World of Warcraft. Got it. Okay. Um, EverQuest was another big one at the time. That I know. Yes. Um, so, but, but Todd Pratt was a huge Ultima Online player. And if you found this forum, it was like, it was like the secret key, <laughs> you know, a tiny little piece of this faux intimacy where a, a small group of Met fans knew this little special corner of the internet where you could interact directly with a player. That's amazing. And he'd come on after a game and he'd like talk about that, that, that night's game and he'd tell you a little behind the scenes anecdotes. And if you asked him a question, he would likely respond. <laughs> I love this. Right? So we're, 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 at, we're at Port St. Lucie and he's walking by and I call out with that secret key, Stormbringer. Todd Pratt alters his path and he heads towards me. He extends his hand and I shake it. Now, take a second. And try to conjure up what a catcher's hands must feel like. These huge sandpapery mitts, like raspy from hundreds of thousands of impacts, like, like, like shaking leather, his hands <laughs> are, right? So I shake Pratt's hand and he says, how's it going? And he doesn't break stride and he keeps walking. And that's it. <laughs> that's the sum total of my interaction with Todd Stormbringer Pratt. Um, this is something that, you know, it's, it's a really interesting kind of hallmark of our, of our culture, isn't it? We, we ask, how's it going? And we don't wait for the answer. I mean, we all do it. Like I do it too. I know I, you know, I do it. I'm sure you, you I do, do it, especially I do it to you whenever yeah. I see you. How's it going? Right. It's not that I don't want to know. Right. It's just what we say. It's just what we it's say. Like, if you choose to tell me, great. And if you just go, eh, yeah. then we move on to the next yeah. So, and, and it's funny. So like, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what I was expecting out of this interchange, like, like uh, some hint of recognition, a short conversation. So you, but you, you got know. that recognition because he recognized that you knew a thing. There's this Venn diagram of people who are players of the game, active in the forums and also Mets fans. So he recognized yeah. this is that unicorn yeah. of... Ultima and Mets and forums. <laughs> this is one of my people. I guess maybe I just had some sort of fantasy about like, you know, a conversation. Hey, this is where we're drinking tonight. Like some kind of like, Hey, I'm, know, in, I'm in the market for a new best friend, right? you know, forging some kind of like connection, you know, but someone who you've only ever seen on a TV screen or on a faraway field. And it's a, it's a heady sort of, kind of fantasy and 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 what has social media these days become but built on that exact thing mm -hmm. and you know we have a lot of there's a lot of hand-wringing though about you know this idea of false intimacy or how our social media uh infested lives are dividing us or keeping us isolated but i, I feel sometimes like these tools are just giving us what we want which is a safe way to ask how's it going and not wait for an answer I mean, I, I think I may have actually told this story last year um, of being probably about 13 or 14 and waiting online for an hour to get Mookie Wilson's autograph. And when I finally got up to the table, 
He never broke away from the conversation he was having with his friends. He never even looked at me as he signed his name. And that experience has always made me very wary of these interactions about what we expect from our icons, about how there's this asymmetry that can be difficult to get past. Difficult, but, but not impossible. Because I once shook the hand of another Mets catcher. About five or six years ago, Mike Piazza released his book, Long Shot. I remember it. It's good. And he went on a signing tour that brought him to Vroman's in Pasadena, you know, Vroman's bookstore. If you're in um, LA, yeah. Vroman's is one of the best bookstores in the city. And I did something I almost never do anymore. I was felt compelled. I, I went and I stood online to get my book signed. I never, never do this. I never stand on lines to like meet people or get things signed. But this, I felt like I had to do. So, the, and the line is enormous. So the way they ran it was every person got about five seconds. You like walk up, you hand the book, he signs the book, he hands it back to you and the people running the line pull you away. Yeah. But I knew I just, I needed to do something a little more. So when I got up to the table, I just started talking immediately. And immediately they started trying to pull me away. And it just starts pouring out but of I your just, mouth. I, I, I practiced, I wanted to make it concise as possible. So I got up there. And as he's signing the book, I, I just say, I was downtown on 9-11, and I was at Shea the night you hit that home run, and I wanted to say thank you. Piazza handed me the book, and he put his hand out. Now, if, Mike, if Todd Pratt's hands were leather, Mike Piazza's hands were like gnarled like oak trees. Right. That's, that's all-star right? catcher yeah. hands. So Mike shook my hand, and he said, no, thank you. And then the Roman line minders kind of pulled me away. They were not to be defined anymore. So they, they, uh, I was pulled away. But that was fine. I, I'd done what I was there to do. Because yeah. when I was talking, trying to talk to Todd Pratt, it was about wanting to get something from him. But this felt like I, I didn't want anything from yeah. like I, I felt like I wanted to give him something. And, and that, to me, is, is what made the difference. Because, you know, we have these relationships with these people, it, like they're minor religious figures. What is it that, um, what is it that, that Joe Posnanski calls them? Cardboard gods? Is that the, the uh, phrase? Uh, Josh Wilker is Josh the Wilker. writer. Right. Right. Josh Wilker. Cardboard gods, right? That's really, really accurate. Uh, it really does feel like you're, it's like it's a religious experience when you're in their presence. And, and when they disappoint us, we, you know, deplore them like they're fallen angels. Yeah. But they're just people. Which is why going to spring training is just, it's weird. It's like the rules are different. Those familiar lines are a little blurrier. And it's like you've made your way behind the curtain just a little bit. Getting just a little bit closer to these, these cardboard gods. So have you ever been to spring training? Would you ever go to spring training? I have never been to Mets spring training. I have been to Cactus League spring training. Uh -huh. um, which is a ton of fun. You know, again, living in LA, it's a... It's about an eight to 10 hour drive mm -hmm. from LA to the Phoenix Mesa Flagstaff area. Mm -hmm. And you can go to multiple ballparks over the course of a day. And you're right about the rules not applying. It's like going to see rehearsal for a play. Yeah. But not a full dress rehearsal. It's more of like a, hey, we're still working out the kinks here. Yeah. And there is an intimacy to it that you don't get in a regular big league park. You get it at a minor league game. 
Um, a couple of weeks ago, I went to a college game, actually at Dodger Stadium, nice. which had that same intimacy because everybody was <laughs> crowded around the field. Um, I really enjoy spring training. I went about 15 years ago, and I've been wanting to go back ever since. Um, it's a great reminder that, as you said, like these are people, yeah, and these are people working a job. Yeah, it happens to be a job that we all wish we could we could have. I will tell you, I'm 43 years old. I am old enough to be the parent of almost everybody on the Mets. Yeah, however, that's a weird feeling. I still, on a daily basis, concoct a scenario in my head where I somehow end up on the team. <laughs> like, every day. Yeah. Not even every year. Yeah. It's just like every day, I'm like, what confluence of events would have to happen for me to get one plate appearance or one time in the field, Moodline Graham style? Like, wow. how do I end yeah. up a Met? Yeah. Um, hasn't happened yet. But I'm not giving up. The, I think the the next realm for us would be to pay, how, pay however much money it costs to go to fantasy camp. Yes. I have always... Um, I had the wrong idea about what baseball fantasy camp was as a child. <laughs> and um, that's all I'll say about that. Yeah. I think this episode. Just leave, that, leave that up to the imagination. I had a I different idea. And it turns out it's not what I thought. So I don't know if anything's changed in the ensuing years, but in 2001, I'll tell you, Port St. Lucie was just as boring as they said it was. Didn't the team used to call it Port St. Lonesome? Port St. Lonesome, Port St. Lonely, something like that. I imagine now that Ioannis Cespedes is, is there and, you know, making barbecue for everyone, uh, it might yes. be a little more, a little more interesting. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, uh, there is not a whole lot going on. I can imagine. Yeah. Um, you know, look, I've been to Florida enough times to know that it's a great place to visit, um, but it's a great place to leave. <laughs> yeah. And the prospect of having, you know, two months down there, mm -hmm. no wonder yeah. um, players get in trouble during spring training. Sure, sure. And they must be excited to uh, start the season in March because it means getting out of Port St. Lucie just yeah. that much earlier. And looks like the weather in New York next week is going to be terrific. Really? Because it was like snowing last week. <laughs> yes. Opening day looks to be above 50. Great. No chance of, well, little chance of rain. Mm -hmm. I'm just super excited about seeing games that count. You know, but there's something that you said when telling your story that made me take pause. You're talking about going to Romans and seeing Mike Piazza. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking to myself... Why were there so many people in L.A. to see Mike Piazza? Because in my brain, I completely forgot that Mike Piazza <laughs> was a Dodger. Which is strange yeah. because the one time I shook Mike Piazza's hand, mm -hmm. it was while he was still a Dodger. Oh, wow. Because um, when the Mets were terrible in the mid-90s, my brother and I would occasionally just get in the car game day, mm -hmm. go see a game, and... Um, you know, just get whatever tickets we could afford, get there early, because, you know, I don't know if they still do it, but back then, it was, they had no problem with people just going down to the field mm -hmm. during BP or fielding practice. So my brother and I are sitting on the railing on the third base side, and um, our favorite Mets player is a walking past. Um, I'm guessing this was 1996, because Bernard Gilkey was a Met. <laughs> And we're calling over to mm -hmm. Gilkey. He had already been putting together a good year. 
call out to Gilkey, he sort of waves, but keeps on walking. Jason Isringhausen walks past. Mm -hmm. Hey, Izzy. Hey, Izzy picks up a baseball off the ground, flips it to us. Nice. Totally nice. Um, Didn't want to push our luck asking him to sign it. But who comes walking past a couple of minutes later but Mike Piazza? Uh And nobody's bothering him. He's already, at this point, the best catcher in the National League. Mm -hmm. He is a force. And he just walks past. And we're like, hey, Mike, how's it going? And he waves. And we're like, hey, will you sign our baseball? He's like, sure. (laughs) Nice. So then, you see, my brother and I are not kids. Yeah. In 1996, I'm 22 years old. My brother's 19. We're adults. We got beards. Mm -hmm. My brother's got sideburns, if Mm -hmm. I recall correctly. And we're super excited. Yeah. We're like, oh my God, a big leaguer signing our baseball. You ever see that clip of the two little boys who shake hands with Andrew McCutcheon? No. If you're listening to this. Oh, we got to find that. And let's find, I'll find the clip. We'll put it on the show notes. The clip of their two little boys who shake hands with Andrew McCutcheon. And it is the purest, most Wonderful thing I have ever seen because you see one of the boys, you can't hear him, but you see him mouth the words, I love you to Andrew McCutcheon. And it's wonderful. Um, And my brother and I felt like those kids. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's amazing. And he just signed the baseball, put his hand out. We shook his hand. We're like, Hey, good luck out there. Please don't hurt the Mets too badly. <laughs> and yeah. because of that, like he was always my even before he was a Met. Mm-hmm. Like it's those small interactions that yeah. you get with these magical people. You know, I, I I tend to I tend to preface everything I say these days about about these kinds of things with when I was younger, I think what we were taught in school was because a lot of this shit isn't real or is wrong or is 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 incorrect but i remember being taught when in whatever point in whatever schooling where we like did a unit on american history and we talked about like native americans mm-hmm. right this is why i do that long preface because most of what we were taught was probably wrong uh and racist and awful but i remember at some point hearing about some practice that was done um that, that was called counting coup and it, the idea behind counting coup was like, it was like before you actually went to war with another uh, tribe or another group, that people would sneak up to a member of the opposing tribe, touch them and run away, and or or like take something from them, or just it was this idea of like making a connection and showing your bravery and showing your 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 skill and your courage by making a connection, a physical connection to someone from the other side. And that's kind of what this sort of feels like. Amazing. To never, me. And then like whenever I see people on Twitter like tweeting at celebrities like saying, you know, wish me a happy birthday or something, like wanting this little piece of recognition, that's what it always makes me think of. This idea of like, I'm gonna show my worth or my bravery or my courage by touching this person that I that is larger than life. And that that reflects on me somehow. Interesting. You know, I, wonder, I could be completely wrong about what counting coup means. I don't know. Like, well, like, I, I'm not the familiar. American educational system. I'm not familiar with that. I went to a school that was probably weird and racist, but in a different way. <laughs> um, 
and it's taken a long time to try to undo uh -huh. those incorrect lessons, and yeah. I hope I've done a good job of it. Um, every day is a learning experience yeah. there. Um, but, you know, it's interesting, like, again, we've talked about this a lot, like, what do we expect from our cardboard gods yeah. beyond try your best on the field and yeah. be a good person? You know, I don't feel like I have a right to ask any more than that. Yeah. So when you get that, when you get that moment of recognition, when you get that handshake, when you get a like or a reply on social media, that means something. Yeah. And whether it means I'm trying to prove that I have some connection to it, I don't know. Sometimes I just like to tell people that I appreciate them. Yeah. Every time a Met, a Met gets traded, if they're on Twitter, I'll always go out and thank them. Yeah. You know, when I ever say thank you for your service, it's always to a Mets player. <laughs> I'll say it to, to our yeah. veterans and our mm -hmm. soldiers because, hey, you know, you're putting your life on the line there. But I say it to the Mets, too. Somebody gets traded when um, Addison Reed got traded. Yeah. Thank you for your service, yeah. Addison. Yeah. Best of luck to you. Mm -hmm. um, where did he end up? I don't he remember. Ended up, did he end up in Boston last year? I don't know I where mean, he ended up there. Good he question. In Minnesota, maybe? or Possibly. I don't know. It's I have not done my yeah. sort of eve of the season. <laughs> Who is everybody? <laughs> where are they? Yeah. Because you know, there are always players that get released last week of spring training. There's always some movement that right. happens in the last couple yeah. of days. Yeah. I'm still, you know, again, this is a side podcast. At some point, the story of what happened this offseason is going to come out. Yeah. There's some weird stuff going on. Oh, yeah. Totally. totally. We'll figure it out. Yeah. One thing I believe with all of my heart is that the people who run any professional sports league are corrupt. Yes. Absolutely. And that corruption is always exposed. Yeah. Um, so we one hope. day we will find the story of what happened uh, this offseason. So we'll see where, where players end up. I am just, you know, again, over the moon excited to see baseball games that count again. Yeah. Um, and, you know, who knows? Maybe this year we get a chance to get to a game and run into a player. Yeah. And shake that hand. Shake that hand. See what quality of leather or oak tree uh, their their palms feel like. Or maybe we get into a Twitter feud with a prominent major leaguer. I vote Chase Utley. Is, would we call him a prominent major leaguer at this point? <laughs> Didn't the Dodgers sign him to a two-year contract? I think they did. Really, all I'm looking forward to in this world is the phrase... Ex big leaguer, now in prison, <laughs> Chase Utley. I don't know what he's going to be in prison for, other than just being a dirtbag. You want to know what the sad thing is? Do you know where Ruben Tejada is today? I don't. Ruben Tejada, last I knew, was in the St. Louis Cardinals mm. minor league system. Mm. Um, yeah, poor Ruben. We were both there for that. Yeah. Poor Ruben. I was discussing that with a Dodger fan recently who, you know, all Dodger fans admit that was dirty. <laughs> it's amazing. Like, it's like Chase Utley is, not only is he every Mets fan's least favorite Do Dodger and former Philly, he's every Dodger fan's least favorite Dodger and former Philly. If you're not from Philly, you don't have any regard for Chase Utley. <laughs> and again, ex-big leaguer, now in a federal penitentiary, for crimes against human decency, Chase Utley. One, one can hope. That's all hope I hope springs eternal. Yes. So the next time we speak to each other, 
there will be major league games have been played that mean something. Hopefully we're not burning any of those 42 losses that I've allotted the Mets this year. Hopefully no more than two members of the opening day roster will be on the disabled list by then. Let's, you know what, let's take a moment Mm -hmm. to, um, I don't know what we should do here, but we should discuss the, the plight of Rafael Montero. We should not let this podcast yeah, let's, go. Let's pour one out for Rafael Montero's uh, UCL. But here's why we should pour one out for Rafael Montero. Take yourself back to 2014. Mm-hmm. Mets are playing a series against the Yankees. And they bring up two starters from the minor leagues to pitch in this series. One is Rafael Montero. The other one is Jacob deGrom. Mm-hmm. Jacob deGrom in 2014 was 27 years old, I want to say, coming off of Tommy John surgery, was considered by most of baseball a mid-level prospect, somebody who could be a back-of-the-rotation guy. Mm -hmm. We weren't expecting big things. When those two players came up and made back-to-back starts in in a summertime series against the Yankees, and you had to say to yourself, which one of these two players are you taking? Mm-hmm. I'd have taken Montero. Sure. Montero Everyone was younger, yeah. had better stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that when DeGrom got off to a good start and put together a great season that year in the two-thirds of a season he played, I was one of those people who were like, oh, we're never going to get better value for this guy. Let's move this guy. So let me ask you a question then. This makes me wonder if at some point, while he was recovering from that Tommy John surgery, did Jacob deGrom take the, you know, the torn ligaments that they removed from his elbow and keep them in a jar? And did he carry this to some crossroads in Northern Florida <laughs> and make a deal to you know, reach the, uh, the skill level that he's at? Did he, did he somehow sap the juju from, from Rafael Montero and oh, man. keep it for his own self. No and, and does Ralph Macchio playing the guitar have anything to do with this? Anytime you can drop a reference to the 1987 Walter Hill directed film Crossroads is a proud moment in all of our lives. Thank you for picking up. On I don't know if they've done it or not, <laughs> but um, yeah. we could ask Steve Vai. I would rather have a follow-up web series about that movie than about The Karate Kid. Yeah, no, same. Yes. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we've uh, started talking about The Karate Kid and Crossroads, so it's <laughs> probably time for us to wrap it up. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have the sign here that yeah. says, as soon as you discuss Crossroads, <laughs> podcast is over. Podcast is over. That's That, that should be a rule in the book somewhere. Yes. Yeah. So, hey, we're going to have games that count in a couple yeah. of days. With any luck, we will... Uh, have good news to talk about the next time we do this. I can't wait to find out. In the meantime, let's go Mets. Let's go Mets.